On About Books, we delve into the latest news about the publishing industry with interesting insider interviews with publishing industry experts. We'll also give you updates on current nonfiction authors and books, the latest book reviews, and we'll talk about the current nonfiction books featured on C-SPAN's Book TV. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And welcome to About Books. In a few minutes, we'll talk about the late novelist Cormac McCarthy and how his career was nurtured by the publishing industry and whether that could still be the case today. But first, here's some of the latest news from the publishing world. Well, part of a new Arkansas law restricting what books are available to children has been blocked by a federal judge. The law would have made it a criminal offense to distribute or provide materials deemed, quote, harmful to minors. Libraries in Arkansas and the state ACLU had challenged the law on 14th Amendment and First Amendment grounds. In his ruling, the U.S. District Court Judge Timothy Brooks included a line from the novel Fahrenheit 451, which, of course, depicts a dystopian future where books are banned. Quote, there is more than one way to burn a book, the judge wrote, and the world is full of people running around with lit matches. And the Washington Times reports that Republican Senator Marco Rubio of Florida and other members of Congress are concerned that federal tax dollars have been used for censoring a conservative Christian children's book author. The members of Congress recently wrote to the head of the Institute of Museum and Library Services, which receives tax dollars, to ensure that author Kirk Cameron's publisher, Brave Books, is not blocked from hosting events at publicly supported libraries. And finally, a reminder that the Library of Congress National Book Festival is coming up on August 12th here in Washington, D.C. The day-long free event will feature more than 70 authors this year, and as we've done since the first National Book Festival back in 2001, Book TV on C-SPAN 2 will be live all day from the festival. And now a discussion with Emory University English professor Dan Sinekin about the life and literary career of Cormac McCarthy. Mr. Sinekin sat down recently with Book TV's Peter Slen. And now joining us from Emory University in Atlanta is Professor Dan Sinekin. Here's his guest essay in the New York Times in June. Quote, Cormac McCarthy had a remarkable literary career. It could never happen now. Professor, why do you say that Cormac McCarthy's career could not happen now? Well, his career depended on a situation in publishing that no longer exists. He required a editor at Random House, Albert Erskine, who was a tremendous 
editor who worked with uh, some of the giant figures of 20th century literature in addition to McCarthy. Um, he needed McCarthy needed Erskine to support him through a series of books that were commercial failures. Uh, his first five books over more than 20 years, uh, sold only a few thousand copies each and went out of print. That's not something that is sustainable at commercial publishers in the 21st century. And why is it that Albert Erskine stuck with Mr. McCarthy? Did he see something? Were these books badly written? No, the books are beautifully written. Uh, McCarthy's, his early books as his late books are all beautifully written, even though there's a big divide, a big difference between the two halves of his career. But his early books are all all brilliant. I love them. Um, Erskine saw genius in them. Erskine was the last editor for William Faulkner, actually. Um, and McCarthy's early books are quite indebted to Faulkner and Faulkner's style. So when McCarthy's first manuscript came across the transom at Random House, and McCarthy sent it to Random House. He sent a, a uh, what I found in the archives described as a poorly typed manuscript of his first novel. Uh, he just sent it into Random House. He addressed his envelope to Random House. And uh, eventually the manuscript reached Erskine's desk. Erskine read the manuscript and he saw uh, something that he recognized uh, from Faulkner, uh, something in the style that that spoke to him um, in a similar way. And he thought, here's a writer that has something special. And so he worked with McCarthy through that first book, through the next several books, um, and in each of them, he thought these books were great, and he thought they deserved a major audience and and, uh, and a big reception. And he worked, uh, Erskine worked to help McCarthy continue to write by using Erskine's own networks with writers like uh, Robert Penn Warren, Ralph Ellison, Saul Bellow, and many others to get McCarthy uh, fellowships and foundation prizes, including uh, MacArthur Genius Grant. Uh, McCarthy was one of the inaugural first winners of the first MacArthur Genius Grants in 1981. Erskine had it played a major role in getting McCarthy all of this support so that he could survive as a writer for 25, 30 years before he became financially lucrative. Now, Professor Sinekin, you said that you saw this in the archive. What archive are you referring to? Yeah, so McCarthy's papers are held at Texas State University in San Marcos, and it's an incredible collection uh, of papers dedicated to work across his career, all of his manuscripts, much of his correspondence, um, and it's just full of riches about the incredible research, the incredible work that McCarthy did. Uh, He was a painstaking craftsman uh, who worked incredibly hard on all of his books. And did you have access to the correspondence that he and his editor, uh, Robert Erskine, exchanged? Albert Erskine. Albert Erskine. Sorry about that. Yeah. Um, Yes, there is correspondence between him and Erskine. And then later, once he gets a literary agent, there's some correspondence between him and his agent, as well as correspondence between him and publicists at Random House and him and various friends. Now, you have a book coming out this fall entitled Big Fiction, How Conglomeration Changed the Publishing Industry and American Literature. Are you saying with regard to Cormac McCarthy that it's because of conglomeration that he is would not survive today? 
Yes and no. Um, so the thing that is remarkable about McCarthy's career is his transformation. People recognize that the two halves of his career are quite different. The first half of his career, his first five novels, are very difficult, dense, elusive books. Um, they're not market-friendly. They're not commercial books. Um, the first four are Appalachian novels, and then the fifth is Blood Meridian, in my opinion, his his masterpiece, his greatest work, which is a sort of sort of Western, but not really in the genre. It's a, it's a very dark apocalyptic historical novel. Um, and those novels, they, they, they didn't sell at the time and they wouldn't work well now under the conglomerate era that we currently live in, at least not uh, among commercial publishers. The second half of his career, starting with his 1992 novel, All the Pretty Horses, uh, is much different. He wrote novels that still have something of that unique Cormac McCarthy voice, but they're also more commercial. They're more friendly to the market. All the Pretty Horses is closer to a classic Western. It's a Cormac McCarthy's version of a Louis L'Amour novel. Uh, it tells a story of a young cowboy uh, who goes down to Mexico and falls in love, uh, kills a man, comes home. It's It's got nostalgia for the Old West. Um, and it sold 100,000 copies. It won the National Book Award. It became a blockbuster film with Matt Damon. Um, and the argument that I make in the book is that... W- What's amazing about McCarthy is he adapted to this changing uh, system of publishing across his career. In your guest essay in the New York Times, you compare him somewhat to Colson Whitehead. So, yeah, what what I see McCarthy having created with All the Pretty Horses in 1992 was a strategy for how to navigate as an author the conglomerate era of publishing. What he figured out was that the techniques that had been developed by genre writers, writers who'd been working in mystery or romance or Western or science fiction since the late 19th century, had figured out these forms that were had a built-in audience who were ready to read them. And that could allow a literary writer, someone who had the aesthetic ambition of a, of a Colson Whitehead or a Cormac McCarthy, to adapt techniques from genre fiction into a literary work. And that way they could merge some of the demands of the bottom line that the conglomerate presses uh, need to satisfy with their own innovative literary techniques. And that's what McCarthy did with All the Pretty Horses in the Western in 1992. And Colson Whitehead is the exemplary figure in the 21st century. I mean, many would consider him to be one of the very great, one of the most celebrated novelists, American novelists of the 21st century. And across his career, you can chart how book by book he plays with a different genre, elevating it with his literary techniques. So he's really an extension of the work that McCarthy figured out in 1992. And of course, Random House today is Penguin Random House with several other imprints embedded there. When did this conglomeration of publishing houses begin? It began in nineteen in the nineteen sixties. Uh, that was when Random House went public and bought Knopf and bought Pantheon and started collecting these other imprints. And in nineteen sixty five, RCA bought Random House. It continued through the late sixties, accelerating in the seventies. Um, 
and really has gone on and on and on into the present. Um, but what allowed McCarthy to nevertheless write the novels that he did with Erskine in the 60s and 70s and early 80s was that Random House protected itself from some of these pressures by having a president, Robert Bernstein, uh, who was there for the first 25 years of the conglomerate era, but buffered the press from RCA and its later owner, Cy Newhouse, and really tried to keep his editors protected, which was not the same at, at different houses such as Doubleday or Simon & Schuster, uh, places where those commercial presses, pressures were more immediately felt. So, Professor Sinekin, you note in your guest essay in the New York Times that after Bernstein, the new editor of Random House said, hey, each book has to make money. Is that a correct statement? Yeah. So that was reported by Albert, uh, by um, Andre Schifrin, who was the editor at Pantheon, one of those houses, those imprints that was within Random House. Uh, he'd been there since 1962. His father actually had founded Pantheon. So he'd been there for 28 years. And then the new president, Alberto Vital, came in uh, and very quickly fired Schifrin. And Schifrin reported uh, that Vital's new policy was that every book needs to pay for itself from now on. They would not be subsidizing some books with other books. So books like McCarthy's, like The Orchard Keeper, like Blood Meridian, like Sutri, which had been subsidized by other books, uh, that was no longer going to fly. So in your view, is that the market or the model today in some of the larger uh, publishing houses? Yeah, and there's been increasing ways in which bureaucracy companies, th- these are these are commercial companies, they've got shareholders that who, who they need to satisfy. And the way that they try to make this as rational as they can is by using various techniques like profit and loss forms that editors need to fill out when acquiring a new book to determine how much profit they'll make from any given book they want to acquire. Or they use comparative titles known in the business as comps, where they say, oh, this new book is similar to these three previous books that all were successful. Um, and because it's similar to those, we can bet that this next one is also going to be successful. These, the, these comps or these profit and loss forms have a sort of conservative force. They tend to make acquisitions look similar to other acquisitions that have come before, and it tames those commercial presses, makes it a little easier for them to try to figure out how to consistently make a profit on every book that comes through. Um, and so that has that is the general ethos, and it has been institutionalized uh, in the conglomerate presses. As we mentioned, you have a new book coming out in the fall of 2023, Big Fiction, How Conglomeration Changed the Publishing Industry and American Literature. But you also have a previous book, American Literature and the Long Downturn. Two things. Tell us about your previous book. And who is your publisher? Ah, yes. So my previous book uh, is about apocalyptic writing in contemporary American literature. It argues that the after the post-war boom of the 1950s and 60s, golden age of capitalism, starting in the 1970s when we started to see some of the economic trends that have continued into the present, where wealth inequality has increased and wages stagnated, 
One response to this among American writers was to start thinking apocalyptically. So in that book, I write about Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian, and I argue that that book is one response to these larger economic trends. And that was the that was the project, that was the book that got me into his archives and actually started inspiring this next project about the publishing industry. That book was published by Oxford University Press, and my new book, Big Fiction, is published by Columbia University Press. Did Penguin Random House have a chance to get your book at all? So as an academic, uh, we tend to... we tend to work with university presses in part because there's a separate, a whole separate system of how acquisition and publication works with university presses versus big trade commercial presses like Penguin Random House. A university press has a peer review system. That means that all of their books go out to specialists in the area in which that book is working, um, and those specialists have to sign off. And for my boss, uh, the chair of my department, the deans, the provost, and the president, they like to see that I'm working with a peer-reviewed press, a university press, because uh, that gives the work a little bit more of the academic imprimatur uh, that it needs for my own career. So I did not uh, let Random House have a chance at, at these books. Well, Dan Sinekin, I presume you have an agent. What is the process for getting a book to any publisher? And when did Cormac McCarthy get an agent for the first time? Yeah. So if you want to work with a commercial press, there's you have to have an agent. At this point, most big commercial presses won't even consider a proposal that comes uh, without an agent. That's not true for every kind of publisher. So we've been discussing these commercial conglomerate presses, but there is a really incredible, dynamic, wonderful world world of small independent presses and nonprofit presses. And many of those presses will take direct submissions from authors. And in the university press world, where I have been doing my publishing, um, even though I do have an agent, I don't need an agent to work with the university presses. Uh, University press editors regularly meet uh, over Zoom or at conferences with academics who they might consider publishing, and it's a lot more direct. So uh, so it kind of depends on who you want to publish with, whether or not you need an agent. And when did Mr. McCarthy get one? Right. So after his editor, Albert Erskine, retired, which was in 1987, McCarthy realized that He'd been protected uh, by Erskine for his entire career, and he really wasn't sure what was going to happen after that. One of the uh, wonderful outcomes of publishing my essay with the New York Times was that uh, someone reached out to me over email who had corresponded with McCarthy decades ago in the late 80s, and he shared with me a letter that McCarthy had sent to him, a personal letter from Cormac McCarthy uh, written to him in 1988. And in that letter, uh, McCarthy said that his editor, Albert Erskine, had just retired. Um, And he was not in a good place to offer anybody advice about how to get published at the time because he said these big publishing companies, uh, they're not the same as they were when he started, and they're more like movie companies now, and he had no guarantee that they would continue publishing him. So after Erskine retired, he was worried. He wasn't sure that he would even be able to continue having a career as a writer. And even as it was, he'd never, he he said in that letter, and he said in letters that I've seen 
in the archives as well, that at that point in 88, 89, he had not received a single royalty check in his entire career, 28 years, 29 years of, of, of writing. He hadn't received a single royalty check. So it was this moment in the late 80s where he thought, if I'm going to stick around in this business with my editor who's protected me leaving, I'm probably going to need a literary agent. So he wrote a letter to probably the most prestigious literary agent one of the most prestigious literary agents working in America at the time named Lynn Nesbitt. Uh, and she passed that, uh, that letter down to an ambitious protege of hers named Amanda Urban, who often goes by the nickname Binky. Uh, and it just so happened that Binky Urban had read McCarthy's novel Suchery and thought it was a brilliant, ambitious book itself uh, and decided to take him on as a client. So at what point did Random House sell Cormac McCarthy in a sense to Knopf and if they're owned by the same company what's the what's the purpose of changing imprints right so it was under Binky Urban's influence uh, that McCarthy went from Random House the imprint of Random House within the larger Random House company to Knopf and the the two uh, imprints have different reputations. This is not something that your casual reader is going to know much about. But within the industry, there's a little difference between every imprint. Every company has a reputation about the kinds of work that they do, how they do it, um, who's on their lists. So Ferris, Strauss, and Jarrow is a little different than Knopf, is a little different than Random House or Doubleday or Simon & Schuster. They each have uh, the things that they do well. Um, and so Random House and Knopf, both exist within the same company because they have slightly different reputations. Knopf tends to be uh, a little more literary, a little more prestigious. Random House is a little more mainstream. And uh, Binky Urban decided that it might be worth trying to change things up to try to make all the pretty horses uh, fresh, to give it a fresh start, to try with a new editor, to try with a new imprint. So she went to the new president, of Knopf, who had just come in, a guy named Sonny Mehta, uh, and asked if he would be interested in trying to take on uh, McCarthy. And Sonny Mehta, Mehta himself, he was following in the footsteps of a giant at Knopf, Robert Gottlieb, who recently passed away himself. Um, and Mehta was struggling. He was struggling uh, in his first year or two at Knopf to find his footing, to uh, get support from the employees, to get support from his bosses. Um, and so he was hungry at the time for successes himself. And he thought that he could find in, in Cormac McCarthy an opportunity for uh, dem to demonstrate his own uh, abilities as a publisher. So it was a really smart move by Binky Urban to go with Sonny Mehta, someone who was driven for a big success uh, and could take advantage of this writer who won prestigious awards but had never broken out commercially. They, the two of those, them together, Urban and Mehta, um, started brainstorming uh, uh, all the people they could get involved to try to make all the pretty horses the success it would eventually become. So, Professor Sinekin, as Cormac McCarthy became more successful, the conglomeration model worked for him to his advantage, didn't it? That's exactly right. Um, and he, you know, I don't know what was in his heart or it isn't in his mind, um, but 
the indications from the books themselves suggest that he uh, accommodated the conglomerate era. The books that he wrote, the Border Trilogy, all the two books that came after All the Pretty Horses form a trilogy of Westerns, uh, No Country for Old Men, The Road. These are all books um, that are much more friendly to the market than his first five novels were. I want to ask you, besides the conglomeration and we talk about the big five publishers today, there is another publisher out there, Norton. What's its story? That's a, a wonderful question. And there's a whole chapter on in my book, Big Fiction, just dedicated to W.W. Norton because it is such an interesting, unique story. W.W. Norton remains independent, and it's the largest independent trade publisher in the United States left. And the reason it's able to succeed where others have not is for two reasons. One is it is employee-owned. Its founder, W.W. Norton was his name, uh, he died young, and his wife decided that she would sell the company to the employees, uh, and it has been an employee-owned cooperative ever since. The other thing, and and the employees become very loyal and dedicated. Norton employees tend to stay at the company for a long time in a business where people tend to move around a lot. So it's a company that ha- that, that that whose employees have a lot of loyalty to it. Um, the other thing that makes WW Norton unique is that it's developed a special relationship to higher education through its anthologies and critical editions. Anyone who's been an English major, been in, in, a, in a literature classroom, uh, there's a good chance they've been uh, exposed to the, the Norton anthology of literature, one of the many variations on it. And that college division uh, has been uh, financially successful for decades. And that gives the company a bit of a cushion to do some things with poetry and fiction on its trade publishing side uh, that allow it to have a little more experimentalism, to let it play around a little bit, to do things that are maybe a little more uh, interesting or a little less um, constrained by the bottom line than you see in the big commercial, the uh, big conglomerate publishers. Well, Dan Sinekin teaches English at Emory University. He has a book coming out in the fall, Big Fiction, How Conglomeration Changed the Publishing Industry and American Literature. In his guest essay in the New York Times, he writes that Cormac McCarthy's career was an improbable trajectory. Writer toils for decades in obscurity before finding international renown It's the Stuff of Legend. The guest essay is entitled, Cormac McCarthy Had a Remarkable Literary Career. It Could Never Happen Now. Professor Sinekin, thank you for joining us on Book TV. My pleasure. And this is About Books, a program and podcast produced by C-SPAN's Book TV. Well, every Tuesday, dozens of new books are published and receive reviews. Here's two. In Waiting to be Arrested at Night, a Uyghur poet's memoir on China's genocide, to hear Hamut Isgil recounts his family's decision to leave China and seek asylum in the United States. Mr. Isgil, who will appear at this year's National Book Festival, received a Kirkus review on the book. It noted, the book, quote, shines a much-leaded light on the complex, contradictory emotions of trading a homeland for a lifetime of both safety and survivor's guilt. Another new book out is The Ruble, a political history by Ekaterina Pravilova. According to a review in the Wall Street Journal, the book is, quote, original, meticulously researched, and goes beyond the mere monetary. It, of course, traces the Russian monetary unit from Catherine the Great 
to modern times. Well, coming up on Book TV, it's our weekly Afterwards program. This week, The Daily Beast, Matt Lewis, takes a look at how American politics is fueled by wealth in his book, Filthy Rich Politicians. Here's some of Mr. Lewis's comments to Book TV. As a, you know, as a Christian conservative, I have a certain worldview, right? So like, I don't believe in the perfectibility of man. I believe that we, are, we live in a fallen world, um, and we're not going to be perfect, and we're not going to have perfect politicians. And so just like Adam Smith believed with economics that, you know, greed, he didn't think, he wasn't Gordon Gekko. He didn't think greed is good. He thought greed exists. We can't get rid of it. It's human nature. Therefore, let's channel that into people being greedy so that they'll invent a cure for cancer or something, right? Um, Let's tap into human nature as best we can. So that's the approach that I take. With the reforms that I uh, am calling for, I do not think that we can fix the problem of filthy rich politicians or that we can end the corruption, right? I mean, like murder is illegal, but murders sadly still happen. But policies could affect the number of murders in terms of criminal justice reform. Similarly, when it comes to policing Congress, we're not going to fix corruption forever. But I do believe that reforms can help. A reminder that Afterwards airs every Sunday at 10 p.m. on Book TV. Well, thanks for joining us on About Books, a program and podcast produced by C-SPAN's Book TV. We'll continue to bring you publishing news and author programs and a reminder that you can get this podcast at the C-SPAN Now app. You can also watch online anytime at booktv.org.